Welcome to Strange Familiars. How are you doing tonight, Allison? I'm doing well. It's my absolute favorite week of the whole year. It's not my birthday. <laughs> but it could be if your parents had, you know. Gotten it on a couple months earlier. I don't, I don't know where you're going with that. Oh, it is a nice week. It's yeah. been very nice weather. Allison's been outside planting flowers setting up special grottos for me with statues of Mary. Very nice. And I also made myself a goth garden. And a goth garden. Yes. That's, can't forget the goth garden. Mary got kicked out of the goth garden. <laughs> Spray painted another color and she was moved to new real estate. <laughs> <laughs> She's not dark enough to be in my goth garden. That's fine. I like my grotto of Mary. Thank you for that. That was very nice of you. By You're me. welcome. Tonight I'm going to be talking with Chaz, who's got some time slip and portal stories. Very interesting stuff. Before we get to Chaz, though, let me thank our patrons. Thank you, patrons. Thank you for everything you do. Thank you for supporting Strange Familiars. If you like Strange Familiars and you like what we do and you'd like to get extra content, you can become a patron at Patreon. It's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. All of our patrons get commercial-free versions of the weekly shows, plus extra content, extra episodes every month. To check it out, go to patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. All right, let's go ahead and talk to Chaz. Tonight we're talking with Chaz. How are you doing tonight? Excellent. Happy to be here. Thanks for coming on. You've been very flexible with me as far as my scheduling, so thank you so much for that. No problem. So we're going to be talking about some time slips and a portal tonight. It's very interesting stuff. So these time slips happened a while ago, right? Right. They happened when I was in my late 20s and early 30s. The first one was in 1978. When my wife and I were honeymooning in Ireland. Before you tell the story, I just want to ask a question. Did you know them as time slips at the time, or did you figure that out learning no, about other people? Them, I felt them that way at the time. Mm-hmm. So, so I felt that something had shifted, you know, and I was mm-hmm. suddenly getting input from 
some other time. Sure, yeah, yeah. Even though I was still wherever I was, including on I-95 going 65 miles an hour over the Susquehanna Bridge. Wow, <laughs> wow. So I guess the question is, had you realized that other people had experienced similar things, or was this just something that, that you felt you were alone in experiencing? No, I think I had heard of such things. I was kind of an occultist then, and I, of course I'd heard of the famous story of the English ladies in Versailles in, what was it, 1920s or something, where they stepped into the 18th century. Have you mm -hmm. heard that story? Yeah, yeah. That's the famous one. This was nothing quite that dramatic because mine lacked the visual part, but I was aware that people had had such experiences. Okay, yeah. okay. So, yeah, so let us in on it. Okay, well, the first one, the one in Ireland happens, as I said, my wife Mary and I were honeymooning in 1978. And we had been in um, the southeastern part of Ireland, in County Wexford, visiting some Wiccan friends, Janet and Stuart Frower. Uh, Stuart, well, he's my dad. He was my dad's age. They were well-known Wiccan writers and uh, group leaders, and they had invited us to come see them when we came over. So after we flew into Dublin, that's where we went first. And we spent yeah, four days there visiting them, visiting this other group called the Fellowship of Isis. And then we had one day left over before we were going to go on elsewhere. The whole trip was about a month. And we wanted to go down to the coast, to Wexford Harbor. But when we looked at the bus schedules, because we were dependent on buses, it didn't work out. We'd have gone there and had to almost turn right around and come back from to the little town, Bunclody, where we were staying. So... We decided, well, we could go partway down that way. There's this other larger town called Enniscorthy. We'll go down there and see what it's like. So we got on the bus. We went to Enniscorthy. Now, I've been doing a little background reading, and I, if you'll give me a two-minute digression into Irish history, and your sure. Irish listeners can correct me, but between the 1500s and 1916, there were a number of risings, Irish rebellions against English rule. And one of them happened in 1798, led by a group called the United Irishmen, which was basically members of the Protestant classes, but with a lot of support from the, the poor people, the common people who were mostly Catholic. Anyway... This rebellion followed the American Revolution and the French Revolution. That was obviously part of the inspiration. And in fact, the rebels appealed to the French government of Napoleon Bonaparte for military assistance, which they got, but it was too little too late. Hmm. And what happened was the French soldiers, there were about 5,000, I think, of them ended up surrendering to the British and they were treated honorably and allowed to go home and the rebels were generally massacred. But anyway, I didn't know all the details. I knew that there had been a battle in or near Enniscorthy at a place called Vinegar Hill. Didn't know where Vinegar Hill was, didn't know anything about it. And so riding along on the bus, you know, and I'm looking at here's a hill and there's a hill. Is that it? Is that it? Well, I'm totally wrong. So anyway, we arrive in Enniscorthy. We get off the bus. We're looking around for something to do, bearing in mind that we didn't have a lot of money. And we see a little signpost pointing us to a museum. So we follow the signpost and we discover quickly that the museum is like this 12th century castle, small castle. Think just a rectangular building with turrets at each corner. Mm -hmm. So we go up there, go in the entrance old guy there behind the table taking the entrance fee, which was very small. We paid him. We went in. We were like the only people in the building. So we look at the things on the main floor. You know, 
Actually, Timothy reminded me a lot of small town museums and little county museums in this country mm -hmm. where people have donated stuff and it's all kind of loosely sorted out by historical era. But the rule is that you've got to show everything. Right, right. So, <laughs> so like, here's the bicycle. And this is the very bicycle on which great uncle Dennis bought the Mauser rifle, rifles up from Wexford Harbor during the rising, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Donated by the family. And so anyway, we're looking at these things. We finish on the main floor. We go up the spiral staircase in the turret to the next floor. And there's some more older historical stuff up there. And I'm a little bit ahead of Mary. And I see a placard over a doorway that says 1798. So I walk into this room, not a big room, maybe 16 feet by 16 feet. And I don't know, are you into Irish traditional music at all? A little bit. A lot of you ever heard of a, a song from the late 19th century called Cully the Boy from Cologne? I'm, I'm anyway, not... it's about this rebellion. It's okay. a, a commemorative. Right. And a, the singer addresses this rebel and, and speaks to him and says he's got his long-barreled gun of the sea, which would be like a big fowling piece used for market hunting, mm -hmm. like they used to do in Chesapeake Bay. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we walk in, I walk into this room. I'm by myself. And there's not a whole lot in there. There's some old maps. There's some pictures. There's some display cases of old weapons, including the long, a long-barreled fowling piece and the pikes that the rebels made, the ones who couldn't afford firearms. And I'm just kind of looking at all this stuff, and then boom. It was like a tsunami. It was Imagine a cartoon of somebody walking on the beach, and this wave breaks over his head. And that wave was all emotion. Wow. It was anger and screaming and defiance. And I was just weeping. I stumbled out of there crying and got to Mary and sort of like, da, 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 in there, da, 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 you know? I was just, I was so washed out. I've never had anything quite like that happen. You know, it's just this huge emotional tidal wave. And so we stumbled out of the room and we stumbled out of the museum, basically. I stumbled out. We went out on the street. We found a cafe, had coffee and a muffin, kind of get regrounded. Mary didn't get this at all, she, but I did. And after, after having our snack, we're walking around some more, and we see a little signpost pointing to Vinegar Hill. And then I realized Vinegar Hill is right in Enniscorthy. It's, the town goes around it. Mm -hmm. In fact, nowadays it has its own website. The castle has its own website. There's a 1798 commemorative museum that has its own website, but none of this was there then. So we, we follow the signs and we walk up this hill. It's a broad, gentle hill. The top is very grassy and open. And there's a two-story, roughly, stone tower there with a date over the door. It's made of brick and stone. Date over the door is something like 1790-something, and there's a little plaque on it that says it's an official monument. Didn't think about it much. I should have figured out what it was, but I was kind of washed out by then. So we hung out there for a while, took pictures, wrote in my journal, this and that. And then it was time to catch the bus back to Buncloding, where we were staying, and go to the Angler's Rest pub, eat some more and drink some more, and didn't really think much more about it. We had three more weeks. Lots of other people to see and places to go. We'll then skip ahead to the next summer, the following summer. So this was September 1978. Next summer is so 1979. And 
My, um, we go with this couple we were friends with to a book sale in Colorado Springs. We live right outside Colorado Springs in a place called Manitou Springs. And um, we go down to Colorado College, which is in the center of the city, where they're having a Friends of the Library book sale. You know, one of these mm-hmm. deals with a basketball court and long tables and all these books out there and people with shopping bags filling their shopping bags. And my friend Ed is there and he says to me, um, hey, Chaz, you know, look at this. You're, you're interested in Irish stuff. Anyway, he hands me this book, and he says, you're interested in Irish history. And uh, I said, okay. And uh, he hands me this book, and it's the memoir of an Irish lawyer named Joshua Barrington, reprinted in Chicago. And basically, this guy was right in the thick of things, and that um, he had been invited to join the rebellion, but he was kind of a loyalist and wouldn't do it. But after the rebellion was finished, he went to see what was kind of the aftermath. And it falls open to page 172. And he says, a short time after the recapture of Wexford, I traversed that country to see the ruins which had been occasioned by warfare. Enniscorthy had been twice stormed and was dilapidated and nearly burned. New Ross showed most melancholy relics of the obstinate and bloody battle of full 10 hours duration, which had been fought in every street of it. And just to say, Vinegar Hill had been a rebel camp. It had been stormed by British troops. Some of the rebels broke through gaps in the British lines and got away. Others didn't and were massacred. The numerous pits crammed with dead bodies on Vinegar Hill seemed on some spots actually elastic as we stood upon them. While the walls of an old windmill, that's the tower, on its summit appeared stained and splashed with the blood and brains of the many victims who had been piked or shot against it by the rebels. The courthouse of Enniscorthy, wherein our troops had burned alive above 80 of the wounded rebels, and so on and so on and so on. Anyway, all about the destruction. So, of course, I bought the book, and I still have it. And, like, there was the answer to my question, what was the tower? Mm. What happened up there? Yeah. Yeah. handed to me in Colorado Springs. <laughs> a year so that later. was the first one. Do you think that it was the location or the items in the museum or maybe a combination of both that brought this on? I think it was those and something else. I had gone to Ireland, okay, you know, I knew a lot of people who were doing reincarnational regressions and this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I had done it myself, although it was kind of inconclusive. But I was sort of hoping for the big something. Mm-hmm. And of course, in my mind, it was all about Druids or something, something way back in the heroic age. And instead, what I, what I got was the 18th century, just smacking me up against the head a couple times. Isn't that the case sometimes, though? Yeah. The very layout of Dublin, the old part of Dublin, it was like instantly familiar after a day. Huh. I could say to Mary, you know, she'd be saying, where should we go? And I'd say, it's okay, we go down the street, and then we turn right, and we'll come out and say, Stephen's Green. You know, I was like, I knew. (laughs) Yeah, so that was going to be my follow-up question, if you felt anything in your spiritual pursuits contributed to it as well. If it did, I don't know how, other than just opening me up to it. Yeah, yeah. It didn't really plug in anywhere. It was just there it was. I've had a couple experiences like that that just were like, Okay, there it is. Doesn't pay the rent. Mm-hmm. Doesn't prove anything, but there it is. Yeah, yeah, certainly. <laughs> okay, so the second time, the second one was in your part of the world, 
Yeah, I think this was, a, this was around New Year's 1981. We had been back in Philadelphia visiting my wife's sister and her family, and we were driving south because we were going to make us take a sort of southerly route through Kentucky to get to my one sister's farm in Missouri. So you know that bridge mm -hmm. where the state crosses the Susquehanna. It's a long bridge, what, a couple miles? Probably, yeah. 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 is a big, wide river. Yeah. It sure is. And... That's, at least that's the part of it I've seen. I hear you talk about it. The only part I've seen is what I see from that bridge, but I know it's a big river. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we're in our VW bug. We're not playing the radio or anything. We're just putzing along in traffic. And I get out on that bridge, and again, suddenly whatever I was hearing was replaced with a different audio soundtrack. And it was a group of, it was some people talking, and it was during the American Revolution, and they were talking about this particular Continental Army officer, who I'll call him Colonel Seymour, Harry Seymour, that, that wasn't the name, but anyway, they're talking about him and how, what a fine officer is he is, and how successful, and they're just chatting, and I'm listening to this, I'm completely unaware of, I mean, obviously I'm driving on autopilot <laughs> at this point, having this full-blown audio hallucination, and then we come off the bridge and bang, it stops. Okay, fine. Not too long after that, I think the next summer, I was working at that time as a newspaper reporter in Colorado Springs as a business reporter. And I met this woman, I'll call her Judith, who was the PR person for a large professional association that I dealt with pretty often. She had just gotten into the job. She called me up and said she wanted to introduce herself. Could we go to lunch? Blah, blah, blah. So I said, okay. And she'd come down from Denver. And we got we went out to lunch. We're making the usual small talk. And, you know, where are you from? How long have you lived there? Da, da, da. And I discovered that, among other things, that she was the babysitter for one of my uncle's kids in Denver <laughs> when she was a teenager. And then um, we started getting into some slightly more woo stuff, like reincarnation. And I was about 30 then, and she was probably in her maybe mid-40s, I'm not sure. And I tell her about this story on the bridge across the Susquehanna, and she said, oh, I know that name. He was one of my ancestors. Wow. <laughs> wow. Now, here's the thing. Okay, slight digression. I have a feeling often that when you make weird connections like that with people, sometimes they feel erotic when they aren't really. Mm. If you've ever had that experience, but it's kind of like the old cliche about the person who goes off to study something esoteric and meets their quote soulmate, right? And right. group and leaves their spouse and all this. Yeah, happens. Uh, quite and often, this yeah. happens often enough. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that we have trouble sorting out is when this kind of energy exchange really is sexual and when it's not. But we read it as sexual because that's all we know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of what happened with me and the woman I'm calling Judith. I mean, I suddenly felt this powerful attraction to her. I never we never acted on it. We only met each other maybe four times in our lives. But it was like when I thought about it later, I was thinking, wow, you know, is this, is this really about Eros or is it something else hmm. that we don't have another word for? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, that's too much of that story. I, she... She eventually moved on to another job, and so did I. Never saw her since. Well, before we move to the third, I can't help but, and this is just intuition, it's not based on anything other than my fascination with running water and, and the other, but I yeah. can't help but feel like the river had something to do with that. 
It must have because like the, the the audio track stopped the instant came off the bridge. Yeah, yeah, like I like just, I just feel like you know, there was like a little bump in the pavement, you know, mm-hmm, boom, boom. Mm-hmm. that was it. Wow. <laughs> fascinating fascinating and there was in in that area there was plenty of revolutionary war activity oh, plenty. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah absolutely absolutely yep so anyway the other one involves i know you have a thing about holes to the ground mm-hmm, indeed and the other one happens in a mining district okay cripple creek and victor west of colorado springs and about that time there was a little bit of a mining revival in cripple creek based on the price of gold i mean it had been a well, Victor was where the mines really were. Cripple Creek was the commercial district. And in the 1890s and early 1900s, this area was big-time mining district. There were like three railroads coming in. There were streetcars. There were chimneys belching smoke. And there was also a lot of labor strife. It's where the Western Federation of Miners faced off against the coal or the gold mine owners all through that period. And there was a lot of nasty stuff went down bombings, shootings, mobs like destroying the pro-union newspaper and gold and Victor, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, also the time I was up there, I one of the people I sort of hung around with a little bit was Linda Goodman, the astrologer whose book Sun Science was real big in the 1970s and 1980s. And she owned two houses in Cripple Creek where she lived seasonally. And I met her through a couple that owned building an old business, commercial building in downtown Cripple Creek, who were astrologers. At that time, Cripple Creek was pretty much just a summer town. It had a summer tourism industry, and then it died in the winter. Later, they got casino gambling in there, and also mining came back to some extent. But anyway, so I'm a reporter still, and I, I remember I was doing an article about the Cripple Creek and the struggle for an eight-hour day mm-hmm. for working people. Of course, that was an eight-hour day in the context of a six-day week. <laughs> <laughs> there had been a lot of shenanigans going on. Some of the mine owners who had been would do things like change the hours from eight hours to ten hours but not raise the pay. I mean, there was a lot of stuff for the people to be protesting. Miners in response were dynamiting buildings. Pinkerton, it was just kind of like Eastern Kentucky, only with gold instead of coal. Mm-hmm. Okay, The Pinkertons were there. The militia was there. There was violence. The Western Federation of Mining expanded for a while. Anyway, so there again, also through these people who were astrologers, I kind of got into ghost hunting. They had this three-story Victorian building, and there was on the top floor a large kind of ballroom, which looked like it maybe at some time had been used by some fraternal order because it had a door with a peephole. Oh, okay, yeah. We could check you out before you went in. And the fraternal orders were really big back then because they were like the only social safety net. Mm-hmm. When you go to the Cripple Creek Cemetery, it's like there's a section for the Masons and a section for the Knights of Pythias and a section for the Woodmen of the World and this order and that order because... The one thing they promised their members was that they would pay for your funeral and give your widow something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she wouldn't be, your wife and kids wouldn't be left destitute after you'd been killed in the mine, you know? Right, right. So there again, gold, this little outside of Victor, which is still there, there was a sort of ghost town named Goldfield, which is nothing left there but some mine shafts and a couple ruined cabins. 
1903, there was kind of a stockade there where some of the striking miners were and their supporters were held for a while. Anyway, one afternoon, I'm driving through Goldfield on my way back home after a day in Cripple Creek doing reporting, and it was kind of the same thing. I went through a curtain, and for a period of, and it was kind of a narrow two-lane road, not a high-speed road, and for a quarter mile, all I could hear was people shouting and yelling and it was striking miners protesting or something, and then boom, it ended. Wow. But I think that was just because I'd been immersing myself so much, and I'd been in these old places. I'd been down gold mines that were being reopened, mm -hmm. been to the smelter, all this stuff. I'd really been soaking it in. But there again, I had the feeling that for just a short time, I was in it, and then drove out again. About how long? I would say driving at a moderate speed of 30 miles an hour or so, I maybe was in it for a quarter mile. Okay. Well, that's... So less than the Susquehanna Bridge. This wasn't as long as that. Mm -hmm. But plenty to, to uh, kind of be taken into that situation, I guess, or into that yeah, time. I know. Yeah, I I was covering one story where one of the new methods of mining that's used now is cyanide leaching. It's really expensive, so... One of the things that was being done instead was to take old piles of mine tailings, push them with heavy equipment into a big pad, and then soak them with a cyanide solution to out any gold that was still there. It started in the 80s. And, um, but there was a case where some of this stuff, or some live, some horses had gotten into a pond that where some of this cyanide was and died mm. by drinking from the pond, and there was a lawsuit. And I was covering part of it for the paper, and I went into the courthouse in Cripple Creek, which is the Teller County Courthouse, nice big Edwardian building. And I went up the stairs to the courtroom, and I was never so scared in my life. I felt like I was going to my own execution, you know. It was like the, I don't know, maybe it's just in the fabric of the building. If you're spending all your time thinking about what happened 80 years earlier. Yeah, yeah. It was spooky. Yeah. interviewing people about ghosts, and I wrote a little book called Ghost Tales of Cripple Creek, which is probably still out there, although the publisher has since closed down, but it was published for about mm, 30 years or so. Anyway, it's kind of a little book for the tourists. It was fun, but I never had any actual ghost experiences myself, even though we stayed up late in that empty building, which was supposed to be haunted, and we even messed around with the Ouija board. <laughs> Didn't have anything really definitive happen. But I interviewed other people and got a book out of it. Most of the experiences I've had like this have always been sort of this thing where the veil is thin and something bleeds through. Mm -hmm. It's not like seeing entities or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, still, I think uh, even a quarter mile of that sort of audio intrusion would be pretty, that would shake me up, I think. <laughs> yeah, it did. It was like, it was very real when it happened. It was... Again, it was just the emotional power of it coming mm -hmm. through. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like the castle in Ireland, but not nearly as intense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The only thing that I that you know I could just 
personally relate to is I, I remember one time a, a friend of mine, uh, actually a, a Wiccan, was doing this scrying thing and she was contacting this this one person. I don't know if it was a person or entity at this point, but she was. Mm-hmm. She said it was a person. And uh, I was just overcome with emotion all of a sudden. And like it had just never happened to me before. And it wasn't, I'm not the kind of person to just like cry out of nowhere or anything like that. It was very alien feeling. It's like these, it was like, these aren't my emotions, but they were coming out of me. It was very strange. And that's, that's somewhat similar to what happened to me. Yeah. It's not my story, but it's, I somehow plugged into it. Yeah. When, when you described it as being like hit with a wave, that, kind of click for me i was like yeah that's kind of what it was it was almost like i was just engulfed all of a sudden well if i was if i'm ever in your area i'm not going to gettysburg (laughs) there have been some scary time slips there when it comes to the civil war i feel like once was enough yeah yeah that some of the time slips that have been reported around gettysburg are terrifying I know. Yeah, yeah. And I'd rather not. It scared me enough to go into the Shenandoah Valley. My wife's brother lives in Charlottesville, and the first time we went to see him, I'm coming out of the mountains and I'm down into the valley. I'm thinking, uh-oh, this had better not happen. Please, no. Sure. No flashbacks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Made it okay. Because, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think in your email you said, as you were like the driving over the 95 bridge, you were kind of not there for a few moments. Right. I don't know who was driving. Yeah. I was carried away. Yeah. Wow. That's, <laughs> yeah. That can be frightening. I had something like that once happened in a sort of non-paranormal way where it was just basically fatigue and audio hallucinations. Hmm. And I, when I snapped out, it was like, oh my God, who's been driving yeah. for the last 10 miles? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's never yeah. a good feeling. I've, I've done similar things. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, okay. To get something a little more contemporary, the fairy portal story, I'll call it that. I live in Southern Colorado in the foothills of what's called the Wet Mountains. And you had a guest some weeks back who was talking about a place called Bishop's Castle and about a Forest Service campground where they thought they saw something that was not quite visible moving through the vegetation mm-hmm. okay i know where that is okay that's in my area okay. <laughs> i'm pretty sure i know where they were i definitely know bishop's castle fought a fire there in fact once so what i'm going to describe now is in the same general area it's in the same part of the county as that but higher up in elevation about a little over ten thousand feet and to describe the wet mountains they're an older range geologically than most of the Rockies. They're quite steep, but they're not rugged and snow-capped. They tend to be forested all the way up. It's a kind of, it's a kind of boreal forest, mm-hmm. heavy on fir and some spruce and pine. But when you get up high, uh, to the, it's all fir. It's known for the mushroom hunting. Okay. Okay. People come from out of state, allegedly from as far away as Chicago. They're commercial pickers more and more, sadly. I've had somebody drive up in a pickup full of mushroom baskets and a heavy Slavic accent asking me if I found any. <laughs> I always say, no, I'm not looking for, I'm scouting for elk. <laughs> not looking for mushrooms. I don't know anything about mushrooms. <laughs> anyway, the fact is we've been hunting mushrooms in this particular area for years. Let's say more than 10 years. And I thought I knew it pretty well. And so this was, as I said, September 2019. And we'd gone up there. 
my wife and I, we kind of walked our usual route. We have names for all these places like the Long Meadow or the Big Gate or something, you know, where we go. And um, we had done pretty well. Uh, we had found King Bolitz and Hawkswings and others. And frankly, I was feeling a little cocky, which was my mistake. That, you know, this is an area where people do get lost. The local search and rescue people think that all mushroom hunters are kind of barmy and get lost easily. And it's true, there is something about just ordinary mushroom hunting that can be a little strange, mm -hmm. a little psychic. Like, you know, you've had to, you suddenly have perceptual shifts where you're not seeing them and suddenly you see them. Or I remember one time when I'm walking along thinking, there's a big bully right behind that tree. And I walk around it, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, it's a little mushroom hunting, just regular, plain old culinary mushroom hunting can be a little interesting. So anyway, we're walking along. We're each carrying a shopping bag in each hand full of mushrooms. We're kind of making our last big loop and um, kind of heading heading up this ridge. And actually, here, this is my fatal error. I, I was sort of congratulating myself on how well I'd learned that piece of country. I didn't need GPS anymore. Hmm. I knew where I was. I knew if I walk this way, I'll come out there, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And um, so we, we're working up this ridge, and then I know that I kind of have to move to the left to go back toward where the Jeep is parked. And I um, there was this ravine between me and where I wanted to go, a very deep ravine. It was so deep, I couldn't really see the bottom because of the way the sides stuck out. It was so steep that trees could barely grow on it, very steep and rocky. I couldn't see the bottom. And I'm, first I'm thinking... Well, we can get down that, and we can get up the other side, but it's going to be a struggle, especially since we've got our hands full of mushrooms. And I probably shouldn't ask Mary to do that. And then I'm thinking, well, if I go toward the top of the ridge, I can get around the head of the ravine. And then it sort of hits me, there shouldn't be any ravine there at all. That's wrong. It's not supposed to be there. That's totally geologically weird. Mm. <laughs> At this point, I'm getting a little shook up. I wasn't really lost, but in fact, I think I looked over my shoulder and I said loudly, nice job, Pixies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I could, we had gone down into that ravine, we'd be still down there now as skeletons or something. Mm. God knows. I, you know, it was really, it was very spooky. And so I, I started hurrying to the top of the ridge and then Mary's saying, are you lost? And I'm saying, no, but we're not where we're supposed to be. And I get to the top of the ridge, which is only you know, 100 yards or so up, but it's so heavily forested you can't really see till you get up top. And I look out and I see mountains I recognize, but I'm not where I thought I should be. I'm at least a quarter mile away from where I thought I should be. I'm looking south instead of east. But I knew where I was. It's just, how did I get there? Mm -hmm. So we start walking the way we have to go to get back to the little forest service road where we had parked. And in fact, I even just to verify everything, when I got up on top of the ridge, I could get a cell phone signal. And so I called them Avenza Maps, which is a map app and located us. Yes, I'm where I thought I was. Don't know how I got here, We're, but we can do this. We just keep going east and we hit the road. Then we follow the road back to where the Jeep is parked. And so we did that. And we loaded up everything. We drove home. Then we had all these mushrooms to process for drying. And so it wasn't until the next day, well, actually, that during while we were processing the mushrooms, Mary says to me, you know, 
you were lost. And I said, no, I wasn't really lost. I was just turned around and she said, you were, I can read you like a book. You were lost. So, <laughs> I, and I insisted I wasn't lost. I just didn't know how I got where I was. But so the next day, I think, wait a minute. So I called up Google Earth and I looked at that area, no ravine. Hmm. And I got out my paper topo maps, couldn't find it. It's just geologically shouldn't be there because you know it's a, it would be a sort of discontinuity. And so the next time we went back, about a week later, I decided to shape up. I brought some offerings, whiskey, tobacco, ties, stuff. Found this big old old growth stump, poured my whiskey in a little cup, put my tobacco ties there, said thank you. And that's become my offering stump ever since for the last three years. Mm-hmm. Haven't had any more weird experiences of that nature, but we, we've been close. We've probably been within 300 yards of where that happened. And I, I suggested to her once, well, let's go over there and see what's there. And she was like, let's not say we did. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe for the best. So I still haven't quite worked up the nerve to actually go look. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've, that, like I'm, I'm selfishly interested in what you to do it, but you know, obviously, followed your gut on that one. Yeah. Well, I probably should do it someday. I keep thinking I should go over there and ground truth this and verify it. But that ravine just was wrong. It was just so wrong. Wow. There's no terrain feature like that around there. Hmm. And I'm here to, and to think that I actually stood there and contemplated going into it for a moment before my better judgment took over. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, oh my God, would we have been down there eating sticks? You know, what would have happened to us? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the scary what ifs. So anyway, I learned my lesson and now I'm trying to be more appreciative and uh reciprocal and all that good stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So do you mind if I ask what kind of offerings you're leaving? Uh, well, usually a little bit of whiskey and there's kind of a natural cup, and we grow some tobacco, so I make some tobacco ties, mm-hmm. strips of cloth. And the first time I did it, I came back a week later, and the tobacco was gone. The ties were gone. So I guess that was good. So that's usually what I leave. Sometimes candy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've We have some issues with things in the house, too, and According to some very simple divination, they seem to like whiskey, but I don't know. Yeah, that's kind of the old standbys. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. <laughs> well, you haven't gotten lost since, right? No, I just, it's the message just seemed to be, you know, don't get cocky, kid. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so yeah, I think sometimes things will tap us on the shoulder and remind us, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This, this thing's a lot bigger than you are. And... Exactly, yeah. yeah we, we may not be <laughs> top your, of the food chain uh, spiritually. Take your emotions or, or, and say thank you, yeah. Or physically, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, so that was, that's a, I call that a very adjacent experience. I haven't really had a vision of anybody. Mm-hmm. I have had weird things happen around the house and this. And by weird things happening, I mean something disappearing and then reappearing again. Yeah, that happens... It's, Kitchen utensils seem to be a favorite, you know, like a corkscrew or something. Yeah. Yeah, that happens so often that it's just yeah. fascinating, though. Where I, not specifically to me, but to people I talk to, I mean, it happens, you know, I get these stories where it's just like, no, I know where I put it, or I know it should have been here. And then it shows up two days later in the middle of the floor or in their bed or something right. like that. Right. Yeah. And then if you don't 
grab it, it disappears again. Interesting. I had a key ring that went missing, and I found that again later in my luggage. So when I was in my, I was used to have a bunch of guys that was when this kind of ended around with COVID, but we used to go ski camping every year in February. And so I'm up in a little tent in the mountains, and I open up my toiletries kit, and here's the keys. But um, <laughs> I actually now I had these are this particular ring of keys is to a group of bear boxes, which are the metal boxes that you put on scout cameras, trail mm-hmm. cameras, mm-hmm. to protect them. Mm-hmm. And so now, I, fortunately, I had some duplicates, and I now keep those keys secured with a, one of those little carabiners. To a heavy pot, a heavy iron pot, <laughs> and I haven't any trouble. I, or I took to hiding things in the refrigerator. You know, <laughs> where can you put it that it's safe? Did that help? Yeah, I had this little medallion necklace that went away. Then I found it again, and I just sort of said, "Oh, that's nice," and put it back on my dresser. And poof, it was gone again. Wow! I have never seen. This was just a couple months ago. <laughs> I've never seen it since. <laughs> I mean, now that you talked about it, maybe it'll turn up. I don't know. I, I, I haven't quite made total peace with the house critters. And we lived in this house for 30 years, and they didn't really start getting obnoxious till about, with one exception, long, one thing went away a long time ago, but they suddenly started getting more obnoxious about three or four years ago. Hmm. Interesting. Which fits in with something that Barbara Fisher at Six Degrees of John Keel was saying to the effect that around 2016 or so, the veil started getting a lot thinner. Mm. I don't know. I don't, this is pretty subjective. Yeah, sure. But I certainly hadn't been having as many of these experiences until, well, for me, it was about 2017 or so. Yeah. Interesting. Huh. I wonder what happened. I don't know. But I mean, I've listened to you know your stories about your experiences at Michelle and stuff and the offerings and the little exchanges with whatever it was that was moving rocks around. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I think you've got to sort of be preemptive on these things. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, I mean, now that you say it, that was all post-2016, but the, the catch with that is I, is that I wasn't really messing with it before then. So yeah. did I get a push at that point to start doing it, or is it just coincidence? I, I don't know. I don't know. That's uh, one of these things that I just sort of take under advisement. Might be true. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But I've felt certainly more people are reporting these sorts of things. Or maybe it's just where I'm going. Mm-hmm. I know that with this oral experience, yeah, it, it really changed me. It, it seriously weirded me out. Mm-hmm. I could talk about it now more calmly, but for the first year or so, it was... I got a very spooky feeling whenever I thought about it. It was like I was so close to yeah. doing something really stupid there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> something that all the folklore tells you not to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what I felt was pixie led. I was had someone with me and I don't know if you heard me tell the story before, but we, we weren't saying a word to each other. It was just, you know, another dude. And I think it was mm-hmm. just bravado that we were both, neither one of us wanted to admit we were lost in this little just this little stand of woods, maybe. Oh, yeah, I think I've heard you tell this. Acre and a half, two acres square, maybe three. No way we should have gotten lost in there. We could actually hear the traffic going by. And we did shoot each other looks a couple of times, like, what is happening? But neither one of us said a word. But I often thought if I had been alone, I might have sat down to rest because it was we were it was a long time we were in there. 
and then I then who knows what happens if you, you <laughs> know if I sit down to rest and fall asleep or something who knows where that goes so I was you know retroactively yeah. well at the time it's it I was happy he was there but retroactively I was even happier that there was someone there with me because I think we, without saying a word we were kind of pushing each other to keep going yeah well I've gotten turned around the woods before in a non-paranormal sort of way but never this was the first time where I had actually encountered something that shouldn't be there mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah it's fascinating I, I I mean you know part of me wants to go look for that ravine and part of me never wants to see it you know <laughs> or to ask you to look <laughs> for it yeah. I keep thinking I should go and then I think well when I make the trip up there it's about a 45 minute drive well, why not just look for mushrooms mm-hmm. and leave well enough alone? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's interesting that you mentioned the sort of uh, strangeness that accompanies mushroom hunting, you know, because I'm immediately reminded of berry hunting too, you know, all the stories we have with, with berry pickers and all the weird stuff that surrounds yeah. that. Yeah. Well, there's something I think inherently disorienting about looking for mushrooms. It's just a shift of your attention. Mm. You get a little bit edgy. And then it's easy to lose your mundane bearings about the roads back that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's this one lady who's a friend of my dad's, my, my father was something of a mushroom hunter and it's belonged to the Colorado Springs Mycological Society. And this one lady who was a friend of his had gotten turned around here in the wet mountains and had to spend the night out before a search and rescue found her. And I think, well... The one rule of the wet mountains is that if you go uphill, you'll find the road because it's a road that kind of follows the crest more or less. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I'll admit that one place can look a lot like another place. Mm-hmm. And if you've kind of stepped through that fuzzy barrier, you're mushroom picking, then you can sort of come out of it and not know where you are. So when I'm out there, usually I'm constantly checking. Okay, we came down this way. We turned this way. We're now swinging around to the east, you know. Mm-hmm. And even then, I still had this one moment of weirdness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's an absolutely horrifying story of a... It was a family who was mushroom hunting in the Pacific Northwest, and they got lost, and they spent days and days out in the forest. And they it ended up they were only a couple hundred yards away from a road, and but they were just so turned around, they couldn't, yeah. they couldn't get their way out. Well, I, something can happen to you, I think, you know. And as like I say, if you're not constantly thinking about these things... And if you haven't trained yourself to always be thinking about drainages and wind and sun and all that, you can do it. Mm-hmm. You should do it. Anyway, those are my stories. <laughs> well, Chaz, thank you so much for sharing your stories. Well, I really appreciate the chance to be on your podcast. I've been listening to your podcast since, I think, 2019, and it's one of my top three. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much. Yeah. You're always on theme, Allison. I try. Chaz talked about fairy portals, and here you have fairy soap. Now, is this soap to clean a fairy with? (laughs) I think you could pretty much clean whatever you want. I think old soap is just made of something like lye and (laughs) (laughs) bones or something. I'm not sure. It's probably not anything that anybody would have wanted to use. And the actual soap is not in it. This is just the remaining container from a package of fairy soap. Ah, just a box that once held fairy soap. 
I mean, maybe there's fairy soap in it and I can't see it, but other people can. True. Maybe you have to look through a hagstone to see the fairy soap. The whiteness of fairy soap indicates purity. The materials from which it was made are the purest and best obtainable. Fairy soap floats in either hot or cold water. I guess that's important, maybe. With this oval cake, there is no waste, as it will wear to a wafer. Fairy soap is admirably adapted for washing woolens, laces, delicate fabrics, and fine laundry work of all kinds. And oh, it's, so it's not for skin? Its use means economy because of the saving to the articles washed. Um, Maybe it's an all-purpose detergent. Yeah, I'm not sure. Did, maybe they didn't have a laundry detergent back then. Maybe it was for both. I'm not sure. It just says fairy soap. Have you a little fairy in your home? Is that what it says? Yeah. <laughs> well, have you? Don't answer that. I'll put a photo of this box in the show notes. If you click on that, it'll take you to our Etsy shop where you can purchase this and other curiosities of the week, those that are left. Besides that, the new book is up there, the new art book, Elzik's Farewell, a little pocket-sized book of artwork. Most of the artwork was done for Strange Familiars, but it's got some other stuff in there, including three short comics I did. You can get the new Stonebreath CD there, Greys and Orphans, which has the Strange Familiars theme on it. You can get antique photographs there. You can get my books there, all of my books there, besides the art book. You can get original art and prints there, and much more. Our Etsy shop name is Lost Grave, but if you type in Strange Familiars, you should see our stuff come up. Guess who also has the art book? I know the answer to this one. Our friend John at Riverbend Comics. Yes. John has all of my books in stock now, too, including both of the art books that no one else has. The only places you can get them is from me and John. Apparitions, Illustrations of the Other, and Elzik's Farewell, the new one, and the booklet, Monsters Under the Hospital Bed. The only place you can get those three things are either directly from us or from John at Riverbend. Riverbend's a great place to go if you want to pick up those and then maybe get some comics or some graphic novels, trade paperback collections along with it. Or if you want to sell your collection to them, they're really good and reasonable. And John is super fair when he buys he's collections. He's extremely fair. Yeah. If you're looking for someone trustworthy to do that, he would be the absolute person. Yeah, so if you're selling your comic collections, he's the guy. If you're looking for old comics, contact John. I just gave John a... There was an article about Bigfoot in old comics I just sent to John, and, and John's going to make a checklist for both of us. He and I can both start collecting those old Bigfoot comics. But if there's something like that you're looking for, John's great with that. You know what Riverbend did for me that no other comic shop would ever do? I don't care that much about the stories, except for some rare exceptions. Mm -hmm. You're uh, more in it for the art. Yeah. Yeah, I liked, I liked the stories of Hellboy because they were informed by folklore a lot of the time. So I, I really liked the Hellboy story. So it didn't matter so much who was doing the art in Hellboy. I kind of like that. There's a few other comics. Fallon Moore's writing something. Yeah. I, you know, I, it, I don't tend to care who's doing the art. But for the most part, I only care about the art. And I like certain artists. And once they're done on a title, I kind of don't care anymore. <laughs> and, you know, people were like, how could you just follow the artist? Well, it's not Shakespeare, right? You know, it's you can figure out what's going on. But John... At Riverbend, the only person who was ever, I was like, hey, I, I want to collect by the artist. And he said, oh, okay, no problem. I can do that. Not like you have to get the whole run or yeah. I'm not going to hold it for you. No other comic. In fact, other comic shops told me, no, that can't be done. John is super 
cool with stuff like that. So if there's like a specific thing you're looking for, if you want to collect by the artist or something like that, or if you just want UFO comics. Yeah, he has a big collection of like um, old horror and monster stuff, I know. Yeah, yeah. But if like say you just want like, hey, I just want to collect UFO comics. He's a great person. He'll make a list of what he has now, but it'll also kind of keep you in mind Mm -hmm. for other stuff that comes up. You can find them at riverbendcomics.com. You hear John on the show often. It's strange familiars adjacent. We consider them part of the family, absolutely. We work with John on the farm as well. We love Riverbend. Great guys. Riverbendcomics.com. All right. I think that's all for tonight. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back soon with more strange familiars. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Color Arts. Intro and background music is by Stone Breath. If you want to hear more or purchase music by Stone Breath, you can go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com. You can also find the new Stone Breath CD, Grays and Orphans, on Bandcamp. CD or download. I'm such a CD person, I think. Oh, yeah. you can get the CD there. But if you just want the download, you can get that there as well. Entity Drift, the ambient music from Strange Familiars, is back in print as a CD, but you can get it as a download or a CD. If you buy any CD on Bandcamp, the download comes with it. You can also find the new art book there, Elzik's Farewell, and a lot more. Check it out, stonebreath.bandcamp.com. Strange Familiars is on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars, where you can join the Strange Familiars gathering group. We're on Instagram, at strangefamiliars, one word, And you can find us on the web at strangefamiliars.com.
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.